Welcome to They Live By Film, a platform dedicated to bringing you film discussion and interviews from around the world. I'm a very sick Adam Lundy, as you can probably tell by my voice, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. How's things? Hey, doing great. Good, good stuff, good stuff. Uh, anyone seen, bought anything recently that's cool? Uh, I've probably finalized like the last two things I'm buying for the year. Um, Severn put out uh, Four Flies on Velvet. They have yes. like a site exclusive thing for that. So I went ahead and grabbed that because at this point, Argento is going to get a special edition 4K of about everything he's ever put out. So any day yeah. now, we're getting Dracula 2000. Um, Labels love Argento. Especially yeah. that era, Argento. I actually, Four, Four, Four Flies is a weird film. Um, I, I haven't seen it in a long time. I watched it last year. It was so bizarre. Uh, yeah. And then the only other thing, probably the last thing that's going to come in for me is uh, A24 finally put out a um, special edition like their Midsummer and Last Black Man in San Francisco for the Green Knight, where they're going to include Lowry's new short um, and some other stuff. It looks like a pretty nice release, but that's with Christmas, that's probably going to be it for me. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, that was a good film. I remember I watched it when it came out and enjoyed it. Thought it was good. Um that's what what else, Zach? You said you said that Severin, is there anything else or was that the last thing? Uh, the Severin one and the A twenty four Green Knight one are the last two I got. Green Knight, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That that one's a beautiful book. Yeah, it is. And, you know, they look like, they. you know, the big issue I had with Midsommar when they put out that, one of my issues was it only included the 4K of the director's cut, which I think mm -hmm. is, in my opinion, the inferior cut of the film. I think the theatrical cut's better. Um, and there is absolutely nothing on the disc. When you put the disc in, it is a black screen that says, do you want subtitles or not? And that's it. There's no menu. There's none of the special features that even Lionsgate put out. It was just a black screen, but this one looks like it's going to include commentaries. It's going to include interviews. So it sounds like they kind of got the complaints about it, but the packaging has always been top notch. At least the midsummer one was. So I expect similar from this one. A twenty four are known for being scam artists, anyway, aren't they? <laughs> but like, no, like I'm being serious. Like they kind of know their cult status and that people will buy their shit. So they like sell t-shirts on their website for like $70 knowing that people will buy them. Cause it's, Oh, oh yeah. There's, there, there's, they've definitely done, uh, I guess, I don't know if this is as popular in Ireland, but like Harley Davidson, my dad's a big Harley guy. Uh, but I go into the stores a lot and the uh, price of stuff is insanity because, you know, Harley's not the best bike in the world. People buy it because it has a particular sound. It has a particular cult status and yeah. um, things like that. And I, I would say it's kind of similar to that as well. Yeah, it's crazy. I think they even do like I think I think A twenty four do a subscription. I remember reading this on their sub before. They do like an, a subscription service that gives you early access to buy stuff before other people buy stuff. So you don't even get stuff. You're paying just to have early access to buy things. Yeah, and I mean uh, it's it's rare that kind of crazy. Like <laughs> it's not like they're the members are gonna you know cause anything to sell out because like. The Pearl stuff was on there for a while, and everything else I've ever looked up out of curiosity has been a while. But yeah, yeah. so I don't, I, I'm not, no, I'm good. If there's any you know, fans out there worse than Criterion fans, it's A24 fans. <laughs> <laughs> but I better shut up because we, maybe A4, A24 might want to come on our podcast at some point. So We'd love to have, yeah, love to have them. We could ask them <laughs> how they how they make their money. Um, hey, the, the have you all seen Marcel the Shell with shoes on? No, I've no, I really though. had no interest to be honest. 
Oh, it's so good. It's so yeah, good. Heard, it's so heard sweet. Yeah. To be it's fair, like, at A24, they do distribute some good films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'd pay $70 for a t-shirt because I liked it that much, but like, it's such a sweet, <laughs> it's such a sweet movie. Like, I don't know that they have, they make a lot of movies like that just anywhere in the world right now, because that little shell is like, just pure, like, like the whole movie is just, there's no big arc. It's just like 90 minutes of pure. And there's a little bit of drama, a little bit of sadness at parts, but like, it's just so sweet. I, I saw it on a plane. And uh, the person who was next to me kept doing one of these, kind of like looking over at my screen. And then after about 10 minutes, they found it and they put it on. <laughs> so we were just watching it together. And I was trying not to tear up. So I'm not crying with a stranger. It was so sweet. Um, but uh, this is my favorite slash least favorite time of the year because I've got sweet stuff uh, that came in. Like the Shaw Brothers 2 came in. I just got my Vinegar Syndrome Black Friday sale came in. But I'm not opening the boxes until Christmas because this is the time when um, we start think, thinking about things that that I can get for Christmas. <laughs> and it's all this stuff. So it just sits in boxes for a month. Did you, uh, speaking of vinegar syndrome, have they done the um, uh, the year, the year thing yet? Because I think they did it separate from the Black Friday sale. This yeah, year, right? but- it's they're keeping everybody in suspense, but they're going to do it from January to January now instead of Black Friday to Black Friday. I mean, I guess so, it makes sense in the sense that you always waited like two months before your subscription got started. So you just saw yeah. stuff get released and you're like, oh, I can't get that. And they probably got tired of the question. Why didn't I receive this stuff? This stuff. Uh, that, and, it's like, and also, yeah. I think they were competing with Black Friday dollars. And so, like, I mean, not that people have a lot of money January, but at least it's not like, you know, Black Friday dollars. Um Honestly, like, I, I don't, not that they need me to plug their stuff. They're doing fine. But, like, I wish more companies would do that subscription thing. It's an awesome deal. I mean, it's a shit ton of money to pay all at once. I think this year, even with my discount, it's probably going to eclipse 900 bucks. But, I mean, I wouldn't doubt if it hits 1000 I mean, we've, we've already went over 900 at this point, right? Like, last year. Well, you get, like, a little bit of a discount if you're, like, a reoccurring member. Gotcha. Um, but I think... You know, even with that, it was like eight fifty last year. So I'm sure it's going to go over nine hundred this year. Um, but they're, I mean, they're getting like they're getting big, like kind of Hollywood titles now, right? Like they're going every year. They kind of move up in terms of like the studio releases that they're putting out in terms of uh, maybe like recognition, kind of you know. Uh, so if that continues, I mean, who knows? You know, who they put out? Um, who put out a medieval horror? Wasn't that Vinegar Syndrome? Yeah, they put out Amityville. They put out TCM two. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. So yeah, they put out Roadhouse just now. Yeah. So, I mean, there you know, there's nothing to distinguish them from what you would just typically see on a Best Buy shelf, you know, ten years ago, which I kind of love because they're the right company to do it. You know, I wonder how many people. I'm sure there is a definitely people who have been around for a long time who are very upset about the idea of, you know, it's just like Criterion when people see Parasite gets put out on Criterion and it's like, gotta keep the lights open, guys. Or Wally, right? That got yeah. like a, they got a lot of crap for Wally, but like I love it. Why not? Like, yeah, I mean that they understand how this works. You got to sell the big items to get the small stuff made. I mean, how many people like, are buying some of these movies? Like, not that that's many. A, that's exactly <laughs> it. Like, if they're gonna go find some obscure like Senegalese movie from the seventies, and he sells, you know, just because it's Criterion, but doesn't necessarily have a built-in fan base. 
And then once in, you know, 500 movies, they release Wally so that they can do more of those. Like, why not? I'm all for it. That's great. Yeah. And I, I think I, I'm sure there's that. I haven't going to sit there and say I've seen it, but I wouldn't doubt it with vinegar syndrome. There's people's like, where are there only SOV titles and porn? <laughs> Speaking of that, I'll just do a quick, uh, Adam, we want to get to you here, but I'll just say one of the things I saw this week. So they released a taboo box set. Separately, they released the first four taboo films, which were a series of pornographic movies that started in 1980 and kind of, I don't know, maybe they're still going on. Who knows? But um, uh, <laughs> the the I mean, I'm not going to talk too much about the movie. It's a it's it's fully a porn. Um, I, it, it is not it's not like an artful movie that has hardcore sex in it. It's like just very graphic pornography, uh, which it's fine. I mean, it, it has its audience um, and it was, <clears throat> you know, well done, I guess, for whatever, whatever. But the funniest thing was, I just, and maybe this makes me immature and I'm okay with that. There, there was a new commentary that was recorded with the lead actress whose name was Kay Parker. She had a brief stint in like the eighties where she was a world famous, like everybody knew Kay Parker's name, just like Debbie does Dallas. Apparently this was like just as big. So she was, she spent, you know, the whole length of the movie, hour and a half or whatever it was with somebody from Vinegar Syndrome sitting down watching the movie talking about her career and talking about the movie while she's just getting like plowed and stretched and all this stuff and i was just like what an awkward conversation <laughs> like i want to know how you get volunteered to do that because it's like i don't know if i can i know i mean again maybe this makes me you know prudish or something i don't know that would be a that would be a difficult conversation for me to have and just like just oh, so tell me a little bit about what you you know. What, what was your motivation for this scene? Play a play by play commentary. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, what's what's what have you been up to, Adam? Um, I've watched a few bits and pieces, but nothing really that sort of jumps out. I watched this little small film called Citizen Kane. It was pretty good. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Um, uh, it has an audience, like... I think. Yeah, it's probably not as big as the taboo movies, but maybe. <laughs> You're calling um, it Citizen Canine? Like a is it like a dog movie, like a detective movie? <laughs> Citizen Canine, if someone should make watch the hell out of that parody. Someone should make have we just come up with a million dollar idea? <laughs> Citizen Canine? Uh, no, I have I have picked up a few things. Um, as you guys know in the Discord, I, I got an Xbox Series X uh two weeks ago. So I am now in the 4K club, uh, because it plays 4K discs. Woo. So um I have a couple of pickups. That I want to talk about. And the first one isn't a 4K because Criterion are assholes that don't release their 4K in Region B. They only release it uh, them in Blu-ray format. But I did pick up uh, Lost Highway. So look forward to re-watching that. It's been a long time since I watched it. Probably about seven or eight years. So uh, I'll look forward to that. But then I did pick up a couple of 4Ks just so I can actually use my player. <laughs> so I picked up... I realized that like Outside of like Arrow, there's not really a whole lot of 4K options for sort of like more obscure movies here in in my region. So a lot of these are pretty mainstream. So I got Akira, the the anime, pretty cool film. Again, I haven't seen it in about ten years, so uh, I've still never seen it. Good film. I look forward to rewatching it. Um, picked up 2001: A Space Odyssey. It's you know as soon as I got a player, I'm like, okay, I need to find this movie on 4K. It just has to be done. 
And then one was a pre-order that I pre-ordered a couple of months ago and I talked about it on an episode of the podcast, but Eureka put out a really nice box set for uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I love that uh, slot. Which is in 4K, nice chunky limited edition, uh, like all their limited editions, very sturdy case, uh, none of this thin cardboard criterion crap. <laughs> uh, so yeah, those, those were my pickups. I'll be trying to pick up more 4Ks as I go. I'll be keeping an eye out now on those releases as opposed to just the Blu-ray releases going forward. Hopefully Criterion start releasing some of their 4Ks over here. I don't really know why they wouldn't, but uh, hopefully they do because I would like to pick some up from them as well. Just, just before we before we move on to the, to the main heart here, did any of y'all make a decision on the um, Vin Vendors set that was just announced? Well, so, since seeing I didn't like Wings of Desire, it wasn't going to be for me. Well, I, I that's the one I did. I ordered a steel book. Um, there's there's a steel book, 4K for Wings of Desire. I ordered that because I just cannot bring myself to pull the trigger on the full set. It's so nice, but it's so fucking expensive, and I don't trust artificial eye that much. Yeah, um, I, I, I I much prefer to buy one of the one of them and then be happy with that if it's good. If it's a nice transfer, I do not trust them enough to spend whatever it is 250 euro or however much the yeah, costs. i don't trust them that much unfortunately um it would take a lot for me to pull a trigger on that kind of set i don't really buy big huge box sets like that um the only one i have is the bergman set um i don't have any other huge massive box sets so it would yeah it would take a lot for me to pull the trigger on something that kind of pricey um it looks really nice and i hope it's good for people who have bought it i really hope it's good um but I I pre I, I ordered the um the 4K steelbook of Wings of Desire because I love that movie so it'd be nice to yeah. have that in 4K and the the box looks really nice for it. I wish I had that restraint you did because I am an absolute slut for box sets. Like if it's stuff I've never even heard of, like fucking Arrow puts out something I can't remember the name of the guy and I'm like never heard of him. I want that indicator. Oh, see, I have no idea who that is. I want. Well, that. you see, for like a 50, 60 euro range, I I can buy into that. When something's two hundred and fifty, I'm oh, like yeah. nah. No, I better not. <laughs> That's like my electricity bill. I better not do that. Um, uh, but like, yeah, a little indicator, like five or six film set. Yeah, I'm definitely, if I, I can be pushed to buy one of those. Like, I remember like in an indicator sale earlier in the year, I bought a John Ford box set from indicator. This is, it was on sale. I don't even like John Ford, but I still bought it, you know? So <laughs> I, um, I can send you when I'm done. I, you know, there's this giant, massive, <clears throat> Um, I don't even know. It's, it's like, I don't even know what it's equivalent to. It's, you know, like those little mini fridges sometimes you get like in college dorms. Yeah. There's like, there's like a John Ford box set. That's like the size of one of those. And it's all the films okay. he did with Fox. Um, and it's all DVD, but if you want, I can send you that. I, I realized that for every like film that John Ford is famous for, and it is appropriately, you know, historically like significant, like my darling Clementine is a fantastic movie. For every one of those, there's like three or four that are not talked about for a reason. Either they're just so incredibly like, not I don't even know that he was morally republic. But yeah, like just some of the like it, that or just not that good. Honestly, just, I, I'm kind of like mixed on him. Um, I wonder, you know, Kurosawa was so influenced by Ford. I wonder if it was just because there weren't that many directors to see like that was just kind of who was in theaters. Cause um, I know he like, you know, stagecoach and 
Like, I know that there's some movies that are just people are going to say you're in the top 10 no matter what. And they're probably there for a reason. But for every one of those, there's like five or something that are just not that great. I feel like I, I this do, is I going like to be... Coach, actually. Yeah. I do like Stagecoach. Yeah. I think this is going to be like a foreshadowing for our middle segment here. Pretty sure. Yeah. There we go. There well, we go. Let's, <laughs> well, let's, let's get into the nitty gritty. So we'll, we'll start with the main, the, main, um, the main show. So, Zach, you already told us last time what we were watching and kind of why we were watching it. Now that you've actually watched the films, uh, do you want to give us another little intro into what we're going to be talking about today? Um, so first one we'll be, we'll be talking about is going to be uh, Death Eater. Uh, the, I mean, I know, Jesus, I already got them mixed up. Deathbed, <laughs> the bed that eats. Um, and of course, uh, going back to it now, I kind of would have chose, now that I've seen both, because before this, I hadn't seen them. I would have actually chosen a different um, double feature for this because I think uh, both these films have a little bit of insanity, but in completely different ways. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say about uh, about these, but we'll start with this one. Um, I, gotta gonna, gonna, I, I don't know why I'm pulling up the synopsis at this point. I'm going to make an argument for uh, why this was the perfect double, double pair. So Okay. I'll, I'll get into the one I may have chose if I had seen this one previously, but I, I, yeah. I think they work well enough. But the first one we're going to be watching is a uh, George Barry film. Uh, he's the only time this guy has ever directed in his life. This movie was even remade, apparently. I didn't watch it or hear about it till recently. But uh, Deathbed, the Bed That Eats, a bed possessed by a demon spirit consumes its users alive. It's straight to the point. It's exactly what you expect it to be. So... Guys, how was my blind uh, my blind pick for you? I, I don't I don't mean to jump in, but I, I I dug into a little bit just out of curiosity into the history of this film. So Adam, are you okay if I go first? Absolutely. Just to kind of set the stage a little bit, because I was I was watching this and I was like, what am I watching? Like, not even from like a good or bad perspective, but just it's just not like a movie that I really you don't you don't see movies like this that much like so much voiceover it it almost reminded me of like a um like a instructional video of like you know you might see or like a, like a documentary you might see on public access television or something with this kind of crazy you know bed that eats people in the middle of it <laughs> um and so I was just like what is going on so apparently George Barry was like a just out of college um made this movie on his own money Pulled together ten thousand dollars, ended up spending thirty thousand on it. Um, got a professional cinematographer from the area and a professional TV editor from the area, um, and was released it in '77, which was just when sort of slashers were starting to become like a little bit more known and like people the the, the kind of companies that would have typically. Um, released this even even regionally we're saying no they wanted it to be a little bit more of like a slasher movie this was his version of it um and so it just went unreleased for years um and then somebody did eventually pick it up and gave him a thousand bucks for the copy uh ultimately sent it back and but they had um pirated a copy of it like you know they they'd like made a, a legal version of it and they distributed that version. So it was kind of, it became known all over Europe um, in the eighties and he didn't see any of it. 
And so it wasn't until later that he realized all this was kind of going on. Um, and in the meantime, for the real, like, hardcore, like, you know, the people that are digging deeper and deeper into film, um, every once in a while, this this crazy movie called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, would would pop up. And they'd see it, but it wasn't his copy. It was this other shady company's copy. But enough people saw it to where it's actually on the They Shoot Pictures list and the They Shoot Zombies list. Yes. So it's the 1,690th best film on They Shoot Zombies. Give it more time. It will be up to that time. I thought you were going to say <laughs> They Shoot Pictures I was, hoping so I was like, what the fuck? It's like, yes. <laughs> no. It's the 17,604th best picture on uh, They Shoot Pictures. But too low. Too low, too low. Um, okay, just that, that little bit of background. I thought that might be interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just going to, I'm a sucker for these kind of movies. Like, these are individual passion projects. These are obviously not, obviously no studio intervention here. Obviously no wisdom or like advice on like how to you know build this script and so it's just something that's fully his own and fully unique and for that i'll always give it a pass so i liked it what about what did y'all think well i i kind of want to go over where you kind of mentioned a little bit of the background of what this reminded me of like from a tonal perspective uh there was a movie that came out in 2017 called the evil within it's not to be confused with the game series the evil within this movie has um, this that movie was created by a guy named Andrew Getty, I believe, if I remember his name correctly, who was an oil tycoon. He um, was a multimillionaire and he wanted to make a horror film. So he he got this money together. It's it's an incredibly strange film because the guy was also addicted to crystal meth. And that's the way the film comes off is it is so strange. It is so unique. <laughs> And then he spent 10 years trying to edit the film and ended up dying of an overdose of crystal meth. Um, and so the film stayed for a while. Someone else came in and finished the edit. And finally, after a film that was probably shot in 2003 or 2004, ended up releasing in 2017. There's a person in that film who's been dead for 10 years. And um, it, it is such a, a unique and like dreamlike is something that gets thrown around probably too much, but it's the, it's the closest to being reality. And that's what I kind of thought of the whole time I was watching Deathbed. That's the so one. Sean Patrick Flannery and Michael Berryman are in this movie. But yeah. Berryman had been dead for, I don't know how many years at that point. Like wow. not Berryman. Uh, no, it was not Berryman. I'm sorry. The other guy, the guy who played tiny in the uh, Rob Zombie movies, who had the like, uh, Matt McGorry. That's him. Yeah, he had been dead for like ten years at that point when the movie came out. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's an insane movie, Chris. If you like the feeling of that movie, like no holds bar, watch that one. Uh, it's probably what I would have picked as a double feature for this one if uh, I had seen Deathbed beforehand. So, just just on that point, Adam. Sorry to keep jumping in. Last thing I'll say before you go, I. So this was all based on a dream that he had. So this was literally a dream that uh, George Barry had had. Um, since you said dream, like I, 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 that was the other piece that I picked up on this. So this is all based on a dream. <clears throat> but I'm um, sorry, Adam. So go ahead. What, what do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this movie is kind of a fucking roller coaster. Um, <laughs> so like I went in expecting absolutely nothing because the film is called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. Naturally, my expectations were as low as they could possibly be. 
Um, and the film started, and about three minutes into the movie, uh, the bed eats a bucket of chicken, and I'm like, okay, that's like, that's cinema right here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was like, kind of thinking, this is kind of schlocky and kind of stupid for like the first five, ten minutes. And then the title cards happen, and it's like something out of Twin Peaks, the way like the bed kind of unfurls itself and everything. I'm like, is this is this movie good? <laughs> um, it, it, unfortunately, it it didn't hold me for the whole film. It it yeah, it's it's kind of a mess script wise, structure wise. The film is very much a mess. But there's one thing I cannot fault this film for, and that's its ambition. It's a very ambitious film. It's yeah. kind of better than it has any right to be. Um, yeah. I'm still not gonna sit here and say it's like a really good movie and that I'll rewatch it and that there's like tons of stuff to pick up on here, but it's an ambitious film and I appreciate I appreciate that it exists and that films like this can exist and can gain audiences because it's completely batshit crazy, but like the director obviously had a vision and had a good idea for what he wanted. Just unfortunately, because of you know lack of experience, professionalism, etc., it didn't quite come off, but yeah, it's an ambitious film. I certainly got some enjoyment out of it, even if it did kind of lose me towards the end. You know, it, it, I guess there's a question, too, that I think brings up when you talk about the lack of experience, the, you know, the obviously he wasn't 100 percent knowing what he was doing. Hmm. Would the film have ever gained a cult following if it was just blind as, hey, this is has experience. Obviously, they know what they're doing. It, it does that charm of this is different because he, you know, it's it's someone taking a guess on how to make a film. Does it almost make it better by in lack of a better way, making it worse. Like there's two sides of that coin. And the other side of this, the other side of this film's coin is Carnival of Souls, which Mm. is, you know, made by another crew. And, you know, this kind of ties into what Chris was saying. That sounds like an educational film. Obviously, you know, the filmmakers of Carnival of Souls had experience making those kind of films, but never a narrative film. That's a really fucking great film that's really engaging, really well written, has its themes deeply ingrained in how the film comes across. And Deathbed has the same ambition of Carnival of Souls. It just doesn't have the sheen and it doesn't have the strength in, in plotting and, and themes and stuff like that. Like what is like what is the theme of Deathbed? What is the underlying story? What is like is is there anything? Is is there something sort of beneath the surface of Deathbed? No pun intended, I guess, because that's where <laughs> the demon lies. Um, that's that's where I that's where Deathbed kind of loses me. It's it's a cool little concept. Oh, a bed that eats people, and they try and make this sort of rich backstory with the demon and the artist that's trapped behind the painting and all that kind of stuff. They they try really hard to give it this depth, but it's ironically the depth is very shallow there's nothing that really ties everything together in the film if that makes sense it just it's just kind of like random scenes that happen for 77 minutes all to do with a bed that eats people there's nothing cohesive you know what would have also been a good double feature blood of a poet and this is (laughs) (laughs) i if i was to choose which film to watch again i would be choosing deathbed over blood of a poet (laughs) He was what year did blood? Well, I should say he's the cocktail stole from him, but probably not. But still, <laughs> the, you know the 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 story did it got the messiest for me when it started to have so many flashbacks into like the history of the bed, 
Um, I think that was the part that showed the maybe the the lack of experience the most, because you know at the same time credit to George for really sticking to his vision. Like you know, there's a very consistent tone throughout, which is kind of a funny, goofy tone, um, and it's almost reminds me a little bit of Brain Damage. Where have you all seen that by the way, the, the Hen and Lauder movie? It's like yeah, no, it's like okay. Um, oh. So, like, in Brain Damage, you know, it's this schlocky, really gory horror movie, but the voice of the, the like, the worm-like creature that's, you know, giving the, the main character the, the drug to kind of keep him hallucinating, and it, it's, all, it's all about kind of a, an allegory for addiction, but this, this little alien-like worm thing has a very sophisticated, like, is it British? Or anyways, it's at least a very sophisticated-sounding voice, and it's a funny kind of parallel um, and that reminded me a little bit of this where, you know, the voice and the tone of like the narrator doesn't quite fit what's happening on the screen. And it kind of, it makes it like a, a funny, like a, like a comedy, which I think it's meant to be a comedy. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's worth uh, delving into probably what brought, you see, this isn't where I learned the film. I get into where I learned the film at, but I, I know the history that Patton Oswalt had talked about this film very heavily during a stand-up show um, and encouraged people to look it up on Wikipedia to verify the movie he was talking about existed. And I believe that is maybe what caused the 2003 Blu-ray to finally be released. I know you mentioned that um, Barry had a bootleg that was going around for years, not him, but he had to deal with the bootleg going around for years. So I believe it came around about the same time. So I assume that actually got more people to watch it. Uh, funny enough, where I learned about it was from a review of the movie In Fabric by um, Peter Strickland that somebody had written, where they were talking about a, a you know a dress that comes alive and kills people, and they had mentioned this film. Now the difference is Strickland has been around for a while. I mean, he made um, some cult classic horror films in the last ten or fifteen years, um, so it's a little bit different in that sense. But the kind of the way this film gets around is kind of been interesting uh in that sense this, this reminds me of one of those things that you know like there's um what's the movie called quad dead zone you heard about this quad dead zone no i haven't so for for vhs collectors i i learned this from watching a documentary that the guy from uh vhs hit fest made cool cool um documentary if you get a chance to see it but it's just all about VHS collecting. Um, but the Quad Dead Zone was selling for like six or 700 bucks as a VHS tape of a movie that nobody had ever seen uh, and nobody really likes. Um, I mean, you can argue that, but most people just bought it for like the nature of the fact that it was uh, so hard to find, you know. But I think collectors get in this mindset of almost like the more obscure and hard to find something is then like the more they want it. And this one has that vibe to it for me a little bit in that, you know, the experience of watching it is fine. I, I kind of liked it, but I can understand why um, people wouldn't. But I love the story of it, like everything you just said and like the history of it and how this guy, I mean, I don't even know if he's still in filmmaking, but he hasn't made a lot. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> you know, this just a little random passion project that has kind of weaved its way through history. It's like, it's like found the cracks of, you know, uh, and and made its way onto both of these lists that we <laughs> referenced, 
and uh, and here we are watching and talking about it here in 2022. So I don't know. Well, and you know, it, it's credit to, and this is an issue I have with a lot of movies. Like I, I'm kind of one of those people where if something has a really long name, I tend to want to watch it. I don't know what it is about it. <laughs> okay. And I think you know, if this was just had a really boring title, I don't know if it ever really gets that type of role going but it's just it's so crass in what it yeah. is like yeah, to yeah. the point of absurdity like he could have just called it deathbed which apparently whatever whoever decided to remake this movie did call it i didn't even hear about it but this one just adding that subtitle the bed that eats it's like i don't know it gets people interested like it can't be it can't be this like it can't uh-huh. be that direct of what it is and it makes yeah. you want to watch it yeah, and then you find out it is when the opening <laughs> few seconds of the film is like a dude sounds like a dude eating an apple. I was thinking about that. I was like, I think he seriously sound recorded that. It's, it definitely legit sounds like he's eating like a nice juicy Granny Smith apple. So on <laughs> this movie's on YouTube, right? So we were watching yeah, it yeah. there, and um, this, I put I turned on subtitles. You know the the auto generated subtitles from YouTube, from Amazon, I mean from Google, and um, it said applause. <laughs> so the best it could do yeah that that uh, sound or whatever it was like the best it could do was applause that made me smile i just like what i, I guess he had to sit he didn't I, it's almost like there was no thought put into it like how would a bed eat people and it wouldn't be you know the sound of teeth going in <laughs> but i don't know what else you do I, I don't know what else you do for that like but that's know. what's funny because like we hear this chomping sound and you think, okay, maybe the bed is going to spring teeth. But then when the bed actually does eat people, it just like dissolves them in acid or whatever the fuck happens. <laughs> so like, it doesn't even really eat people. It dissolves people. So, you know, <laughs> it's... Yeah, but that, yeah. that's not as catchy of a title. And, and I guess that that's dissolves. what makes it like that, dr- that dreamlike to it, right? Like it doesn't quite make, like it makes sense and then it doesn't. No, yeah. it makes yeah it's, yeah. it's such a it's it's a bizarre little gem of a film, and I would I would even though, like I said, it kind of lost me towards the end, and it's definitely not my usual cup of tea. Hence why Zach picked it in the first place. Um, <laughs> it was this week is just a fuck you to me. Um, like I would oh, recommend I'm this. Dillman, aren't I? I'm getting that this week. Gene Dillman, Satan Tango double feature coming up. Oh, fuck uh, me. <laughs> no, um, but this is the film that I would recommend people in the same way you'd like recommend the room. You know, those kind of like, I'm not saying it's like as bad as The Room or anything like that. I think there's a lot more competent filmmaking in this film, which is not a high bar to set. <laughs> but it's that kind of film where you could watch this with some friends and just kind of like have a laugh at it while also going like, that was kind of cool or that was kind of weird, you know? It just, it's, it has like that midnight movie vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I would rec- I would recommend watching this with the corn shucker. Oh, I forgot um, you watched that. I haven't seen that yet. They they both have a similar vibe of just sort of a maverick filmmaker doing what they want, and what they want is weird and kind of beautiful in its own like crazy way. So, you know, I think it's also fascinating. We're all trying to find comparisons to this movie, and it's like none of them quite fit of what it is. So it gives it this weird like uniqueness to it. You're like, this kind of fits for this reason, exactly. and it's like nothing's quite there. Exactly. Um, this, yeah, this, this if this film is anything, it's unique and ambitious. If not, if not actually good, it's unique and ambitious. <laughs> we need to um, write into Marvel and see if we can get George Barry to make the next Marvel movie. I would, I would watch the hell out of it. Hell yeah. 
Put him I think in he like, owns a uh, bookstore now, from my understanding. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Put him in charge of like the Ant Man franchise or something. Something with it already has a like, kind of a dreamlike quality to it. The Ant Man that eats. Oh, yeah. All right. And before we're, we're, we're going to do things a little bit different this week, uh, usually we'd have a middle segment in between these films. But I think there, uh, Chris brought up a good point. We kind of got a flow going on with these films and don't want to be a little too abrupt. So our second feature is going to be Battle Heater. I'm not saying the original name. A uh, Katsu, which uh, I said incorrectly, but what that basically is, is it's a table that has a heater attached, um, which sounds really dangerous to me, but I assume it works pretty good. Comes alive and tries to eat people. This is by uh, George Aida, um, at least according to what I can figure out. So, all right, guys, what'd you think of the second feature? I'll start with Adam because I think it was his favorite movie we've ever done. <laughs> um, I I saw this movie a few days ago and I didn't know what to say about it. Um, I still don't know what to say about it. Um, it feels like a fever dream. I genuinely don't really have a clue what happens at any point during this movie. There is no five minute section of this movie where I'm like, okay, I know what's happening. I'm purely on the ball here. It's just chaotic in any way, in any possible way. I don't know many films that have as much going on in such a small amount of time as this film. It's yeah. It's I felt like this is like as close to like, I know you ever hear like people say films are like, Oh, it's like if you took a load of drugs, this is like if you took a fuck ton of drugs. This is what this movie is. It's utterly insane. Yeah, I've seen it in reviews compared to Haosu. Haosu is like John Dealman compared to this. Um, it's just utter chaos. And I honestly, I can't say that I liked it. You know, I, I'm all here for fun. I'm all here for madness and chaos and surrealism and all that stuff. But yeah, this was just like sensory overload to me i have no idea what it's even about apparently it's about a heater that kills people i think that heater shows up for like a solid 10 minutes of this movie i was gonna while, that too, uh, yeah. while a hundred other things are also happening at the same time <laughs> um yeah battle heater it's a big stinker for me i i don't know how it has 3.4 rating on letterbox probably because only 336 people have seen it apparently which is more <laughs> than imdb that had 114 Okay, well there you go. There's there's your difference. Apparently it's more of a letterbox show. movie than an IMDB movie. Like there are twelve people on this earth who have rated Battle Heater five stars on Letterbox. They should all be institutionalized. It's probably the twelve people in the movie. I mean it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the director made twelve burners. Um yeah, that's that's my thoughts on, on Battle Heater. Um, um, I do want to note that it. I do think the movie sets the tone really well for what it's going to be because it starts with like this obvious miniature car rolling. You're like, oh, this is going to be cheap as hell because you know it's yeah. a miniature. But then it shows an actual car flip over and destroy it. And I'm like, sure. I don't okay. know why that car is there. That was funny as fuck. I, I mean, that was that me. was a good bit. That was a good bit. I'm not going to lie. That, that bit did get me. <laughs> so the best I could think about was if this was like a sort of like a a Monty Python skit that was, you know, in this era of Japanese cinema where they were trying to push the boundaries of like kind of what would be interesting to see because even the ending of the movie <clears throat> where out of nowhere, like a rock comes down and right before it squishes them all, it switches to a cartoon rock and it just says the end. 
like it's a very Monty Python kind of vibe to it, right? In the in that sense, like in the bookends, but the middle of it feels more like six string samurai. Did y'all ever see that? No, I meant to get the release, but I never did. It's just, you know, it's like this kind of punk rock or 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 you know, rock and roll kind of rebellion theme, like like kind of going weaving through it for for no reason other than Probably, I'm, I'm guessing George Aida was in that world. I, I, I haven't verified it, but um, this, you pointed out this is the same year that Tetsuo the Iron Man came out. <clears throat> um, this is also the year that in the States, Death Spa came out. This is also the year that Society came out. This was the first Puppet Master. Um, like something was happening in 1989. People were just kind of bored. <laughs> I cannot um, believe you didn't mention the cinematic masterpiece that is Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh, just, <laughs> wait. Jason Takes Manhattan was 89? Yeah. yeah. They made eight and movies it, in the 80s. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It has, it has the second best Jason Voorhees kill. It, Can that is true, actually, one yeah. is? Can anyone guess which one it is? Uh, the, the boxing one? Yeah, or he punches <laughs> no, that dude's no. head off and it falls into a no. trash can. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Uh, I, I just remember that being the movie where I was like, such little actually takes place in Manhattan. Oh, but, it's, a pure, um, it's, it's a pure scam. It's like the last 15 Jason minutes. takes a cruise. <laughs> Jason, Jason takes a cruise ship to Manhattan. This, this which, isn't a Friday the Logistically, thing. I'm wondering, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering logistically how they took a cruise to Manhattan from... Okay, you were, yeah. Because it's in a lake. Yeah. My definition <laughs> yeah. He's a, the Mississippi goes up to a point. I bet you there's a river that goes up kind of east from there. Um, I don't know. We'd have to look at a map, but yeah, I think that Battle Heater to me fits in that weird genre of like anarchic. I, I say punk rock, but but very loosely, just because there's two different songs from that punk band or that kind of you know like rock band that's dressed punk in in there. Um, but there's a few. There's a six string samurai. Six string samurai is one. There's another one that's an, a Bali, like an Indian horror movie called, um, not Pumpkinhead, shit, what's it called? Um, it was the very first Massacre video release. Hold on. Um, sorry. While you're looking not... that up, it also reminded me of like a film club film we watched a while ago. Remember that kind of punky one? You talking about watched? Body Snatchers? No, we watched oh. it in the film club. Um, oh okay that wasn't film club was it no i'm gonna try and pull it up here while chris is looking that up we'll probably both find the our answers at the same time um it was a really weird film terminal usa oh fuck that movie fuck that. <laughs> i hate it so much <laughs> now i hate this of, movie it reminded me of that so i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh man he took it off of his page i guess he takes movies that sell out off of his page um it's going to take me a minute to find it. But anyways, there's a, yeah, there's just some certain directors. Honestly, even Natural Born Killers, I could probably throw in here. I'm not saying they're good or bad. There's just a, it's like a frenetic energy to it all. Like the, it's like this kind of unceasing, just like pounding of like, like high energy, like chaos. Um, and I think this movie definitely fits into that little tiny genre. Um yeah, I, I don't movie, know. Is the movie called Mahakal? No, um, Mahakal is what I was gonna. It's Mahakal is awesome. Mahakal is uh, 
a cross between Freddy Krueger and um, a musical. So oh, yeah, I just I see a dude with razor claws and a burned face. What the fuck? <laughs> that is Freddy Krueger. No, Mahakal. I might do an Indian horror uh, episode for us one day because Mahakal is awesome. Um, uh, but it's it's everything you, you felt you didn't know that you were missing in a Freddy Krueger movie. Um, but um, here it's Hackle Lantern. Thank you, Hackle Lantern. Oh shit! Okay, I, see, I actually thought about Hackle Lantern, but I was like, that's not Indian, is it? I haven't seen it, but I was just based on the title. The the director it was. Um, oh okay. Yeah, and the producer was, um, but um, it has those cutaway music sequences just like this, and um. Yeah, I don't know. There's just a little tiny sub genre of, you know, these kind of rock and roll horror films that are also musicals and, and just fully chaotic that I always kind of enjoy. Um, I don't know that I would watch this one again, but I'm not going to. I get where the 3.4 comes from. I would probably give it three stars. I had a fun time with it. Um, you know, it's it's interesting when you talk about inanimate uh, items eating things. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't pick these on purpose to pick these like off the wall weird ones, but then you think about like Christine, you're like, man, Christine is so normal in comparison. Like that's just <laughs> as straightforward as it gets. It, it makes <laughs> it makes no qualms about what that is, and this one's like, it's something. I also think it matters what you choose. Like a deathbed is kind of funny. Like I can get behind that, but a space heater is like really stretching the whole like. The whole, like, you know, here's a object around the house that eats people. Well, and I guess uh, you mentioned that. It's like, such a niche object, though, as well. Like, like obviously, we don't even have those in the West. Yeah, whereas everybody right. has a bed. So, like, it's it can be kind of easy to get scared of a bed, to get scared of this really obscure heater <laughs> table thing. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, it, I guess with Christine, you have something, with a car that can operate on its own. Like, a, a bed can't move. In most circumstances besides this movie, a table heater can't move. Yeah. Um, but a car, you know, it, it can have, like, a personality in the sense that, like, okay, yeah, the headlights look like eyes. It can, you know, it can almost be personified. Uh-huh. While a bed isn't going to be personified. A, t- a table heater shouldn't be personified. Um, so it, I think that might be where you have to get a little weird with it because you're like, well... Yeah, either the either people just keep getting underneath this table and dying, or the fucking thing's got to move. Yeah, exactly. I like how they use the um, the plug here, like the cord, to kind <laughs> like of like. Snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of wrapped around people's legs, and there it's almost like um, you remember. Oh, shoot. Um, well, anyways, there's a couple of jolly films that are based like literally around a cat, like not in the sense that like there's you know the ominous cat, but like the cat is the killer. And they had to get creative with how they do that. So the cat would like find ways to trip people into knives or like, you know, because a cat can't really kill somebody. <laughs> um, they so won't stop re- trying. Yeah. Ex- well, yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> um, if they were uh, as big as a lion, house cats would kill us all. That's what they say, right? But um, yeah, anyways, I think when you get to a point where like the object clearly can't kill people, on its own, like you said, then you have to kind of start getting creative and wacky with it because what else are you going to do? Adam's like, not make it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, but that's when you have to install it with a demon, you know, and make it get really big and 
I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I actually don't even really know what, how. Can someone enlighten me as to how the table became autonomous, killing people? I can't say I, I can pinpoint when that happened in the film. Actually, can we talk about this for both movies because they both have an interesting uh, mythology and kind of background? Sure. Let's let's. Uh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> okay. Or history, whatever. So this one, I don't remember. That's bad. This one was okay. Battle heater. See, like apparently, according to Letterboxd, yeah, it happens when the main character uses that stun gun on his friend who who likes to die oh, or pretend yeah, to die or something. In the movie. But I don't remember the the battle heater being involved in that. So no, there's I, there's a there's like a deity that's based around electricity throughout the movie, right? I, fuck knows. Yeah, I guess so. there's a there's a guy that was praying to electricity at one point. Okay. Chris paid way more attention to this movie than either either one of us did. Like he, he's yeah. got this figured out. Well, I also just finished it. Um, <laughs> there, there's something because even when that older couple in the beginning of the movie they get shocked to death, but when they defeat the Kotatsu, then the couple comes back to life and they're just like they were just like having a sleep, right? Um, something around electricity here, which I mean. That's okay, whatever. The 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 deathbed was about um like demonology kind of, right? It was all like at one point they like drew that blood circle around the bed and like lit a fire or something and then it, that's what killed it. Yeah, so be more traditional uh for western audiences like to get behind the the bed. Yeah, like the deathbed is pretty straightforward. A, a demon became ensnared in the bed and you know <laughs> It, every, every you know it awakens and kills people every 10 years like pennywise that's you know i think i think we can call that straightforward enough yeah. as crazy as it sounds it, it sound it's more straightforward than battle heater anyway yeah battle heater was something to do with electricity i just don't fully remember like exactly how it all went down or if that was even explained and then who was the the guy that bust through the door at the end of the movie that was dressed like a samurai from lone wolf and cub no idea. And okay, is there, I thought is that the start the guy the who wore the beanie who had the weird hair, but I don't know if that was actually him or not. I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember either. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if the director knows who it is. He just wanted a mech suit. That's really funny. Wait, Aliens like, just came out a few years. Like, I, that, so. like this film, like this film's ninety three minutes, and I feel like it's missing another ninety three of other. Of other footage that contextualizes everything that we see. It's like they just cut out every second scene. <laughs> I that mean, would give it, context. This was okay. I'm not defending the movie, but this did have precedence in a way, right? Like I've been going through this Eurocrypt box from of Christopher Lee movies, and um, there's a there's one of them where in the middle of the movie they just take a pause. And have like a five or ten minute scene in a club with people singing um, for no reason. There's no bearing on the plot. I I think that there was <clears throat> this idea that like there's a loose construct of a plot that's filled in with a bunch of random stuff just to kind of kill time. There's precedence for that, right? This one just seems to like ramp it up and and make the whole thing random with like maybe maybe this could have been like a fifteen minute short. Yeah, it if definitely it, could have just been a short film. Yeah. Like, if it was to be coherent, it would need to be about 10 to 15 minutes. 
and just be a kind of a funny idea. Um, I don't have no idea what else to say about this movie. <laughs> I don't think there's a whole lot to say. I liked it too. I didn't actually didn't hate it, but I I wouldn't go back and rewatch it. Yeah, no. Maybe it's gonna get it. I think this would need to be a, as a part of a box set of you know like like a um, Mad Libs type thing, like a like a blank that eats blank um, <laughs> box set, uh, and then I would I would buy that. I would support that. I mean, when I was looking up stuff to potentially pair with Deathbed, I found there's a lot. Like, I think you mentioned the Amityville movies. There's like two or three of them that do that. Oh, the Amityville movies are crazy. Like, they're all over the place. What is there, like 27 of them now or something? Oh, yeah. There's just no way to watch them. I mean, they're like at one time they were <laughs> they were at least trying to sort of be quasi sequels. And now it's just like all right, let's put a vibrator in it. Okay, let's make it on Thanksgiving and not include the iconic house. Like, yeah. it, it, it's just name only at this point. It's just possessed things. It's just become like possessed things, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Which I'm sure when that guy shot his family up, that was the first thing he thought about. Like, man, they're going to make some crazy ass movies about this. Well, that's kind of the fucked up thing is like, this is all based off of a true event. And so yeah. based off of that, like horrifying event is like this whole series of films about like possession and i don't know vibrators he probably doesn't believe i think he he might still be alive or he hasn't been dead very long um you know i i I wonder if he hears about it like why like why would you do that who's the (laughs) what's the the oh bronson you made us you you, we watched a movie called bronson right yeah yeah where he's still alive and like he's actually talking about like they interview him and stuff now talking about the his life and yeah, it's interesting when these folks are still alive. Well, it's like, um, I don't know if I want to spoil Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, but there's someone who dies in that movie who is still living and dies very brutally. And I'm like, he absolutely deserves to uh, have that happen to him because he was an awful person. But it's like, kind of that's got to fuck with you too, right? If you ever see that scene. Yeah, but uh, the, the opposite also is true in that film. Someone who died brutally in real life is alive in it. So yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's kind of that. But um, but like it reminds me as well of that third um. Oh, what's those those third uh freaking James Wan horror movies? Conjuring the third Conjuring movie annoyed the crap out of me because like it's based on a real murder and they're like blaming some demon witch on it rather than the guy who like actually murdered the person yeah because at so. least with the first two they're haunting events like no yeah, one's nobody got pretend hurt. it was real like exactly nobody... nobody got hurt it's it's fine like we're like when we're when we're blaming a real life murder on a demon like from something that happened in like the 70s like as, as a like he'll still have family members still living like that's so fucked up you said james wan horror movie yeah, didn't James Bond? Oh, no, 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 no. He did, he did, he did. Okay. I just, I heard James Bond, and I was trying to figure <laughs> out, like, wow, I really missed something on the whole Conjuring franchise. <laughs> that's um, my, that's my sick throat making my B's and my no, M's and W's sound the same. No, you're all good. I was, I, I, it just took me a second to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? The best thing I can think about on the back of this is. Uh, a discussion about some of the best films ever made. Y'all want to switch over to that? 
Yeah, because these are obvious omissions. <laughs> so on that note of talking about great cinematic experiences, you know, the next films we're going to talk about may not be as good as the last two, but mm-hmm. we are going to take a deep dive into the recently announced Sight and Sound 2022 poll uh, we are specifically going to be looking at the critics poll. We'll probably reference the director's poll. They are both available on BFI's website. Um, this is obviously the talk of the town at the moment in film circles because it's something that only comes around every 10 years. Uh, it's a hugely influential list. It kind of influences how films will be seen by audiences and critics for the next 10 years until inevitably another major shakeup happens. There was sort of rumors leading up to the release there was going to be a new number one. Obviously, last time there was a poll, uh, Vertigo took number one from Citizen Kane, which had been number one for, I think, like 50 years. Um, Vertigo, unfortunately, couldn't hold its place, um, you know, for another 10 years this time around. And we will get into uh, what has taken what has taken its spot. But yeah, it feels like with the moment, with this being the hot button topic, it's good for us to give maybe our thoughts on the top 100, both as a concept and in terms of the actual films that are listed. So I'm just going to give a rundown on what the top 10 is. If anyone has any particular thoughts on these 10, feel free to give them. We're not going to do a play by play of the top 100 or anything like that. Um, but if anyone has any quick thoughts on any of the 10, feel free to jump in. Um, so coming in at number 10 is the Stanley Donnan slash Gene Kelly musical singing in the rain. Um, which I think is fine. I don't know if I'd have it in my top 10, but you know, it's it's a pretty enjoyable film, especially for someone who doesn't actually like musicals. I, I have time for singing in the rain. Um, number nine is the Ziga Vertov sort of documentary kind of slash sort of art film, Man with a Movie Camera. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen that. I remember I talked about it before on the podcast. It's pretty awesome uh, for what it is. It's no narrative at all, but it's just kind of pure cinema. Uh, I don't know if you have you guys seen that movie. No, it's on my list after you talked about it, but I haven't seen. Yeah, it. I'd recommend it. It's really interesting. Um, it's just it's just pure pure cinema. Um, number eight was a film that I predicted that might break into the top five, but didn't quite get it. Uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. We all know what we think of that. We had a whole episode dedicated to it nearly, so don't need to speak too much on Mulholland Drive. Uh, number seven was a really interesting one. Uh, it's the Claire Dennis film, Beau Travail, um, which we watched in the film club recently. We didn't talk about it on the podcast, but we did watch it on the Criterion Film Club uh, over our slash Criterion conversation. Um, very, very high. It's a great film. Um, a little bit higher than I thought it would be. It's the rhythm uh, of the night. It's uh, the rhythm of the night. What a, that's a great ending to a film, to be fair. It's one of the all-time great endings. Uh, number six again was another film actually between six and two with the exception of number five which I had swapped out from Mulholland Drive this was my predicted top five so I feel <laughs> the number one really fucked me up as it moved everything back in place um, number six is 2001 A Space Odyssey Stanley Kubrick again we don't need this we don't need to sit and talk about that one too much uh, number five which again was something I thought would definitely be in the top ten I didn't expect it to be this high is the Wong Kar Wai film In the Mood for Love. Uh, I still prefer Chunking Express, but I can understand In the Mood for Love being there. It's a great film. Uh, number four is the Otsu film Tokyo Story, a really emotionally effective film. 
uh, was always going to be high on these lists. I think it was number one on the director's list last time around in 2012. So we're always going to expect to see it pretty high. Number three is Citizen Kane, uh, Orson or Citizen Kane, as it's sometimes known, <laughs> uh, from Orson Welles. Uh, number two was the last 2012's winner, Vertigo, Albert Hitchcock. Uh, it's the best film ever made. It's my favorite film, but Chris thinks it's shit. Uh, and then the new number one, which is con- controversial to say the least, pretty much every film related subreddit has been talking about it. Paul Schrader came and gave his boomer thoughts about it. And it's it's caused it's caused the film world to explode. Uh, it's the Chantal Ackerman film from 1975, Jean Dielman, 23 Quay to Commerce, 1080 Brussels. Um I, I I haven't seen it. Have any of us seen it? I don't think any of us have seen it. I was trying no, to I, before I, this. Something yeah. about a prostitute cooking, cleaning, and for three and a half hours just doesn't doesn't draw I think the me. Pros- in, to be honest. I think the prostitute part is a twist. Oh, um, well, sorry, everyone. I've been told <laughs> that's what the movie's about, so oh. it was spoiled for me too. Yeah, no, I, I knew about the prostitute part, but I, I'm pretty sure that part's supposed to be like a twist that like this normal housewife is also a prostitute on the side. That's like your first twist when you're like an hour in to try and keep you engaged, I guess. Um, yeah, I was going to, I genuinely had planned to watch Jean Dillman this morning before recording, but then I've been sick. So I just, I didn't, I couldn't put myself through it. Because um, I've already watched a Chantal Ackerman film in the last week and I didn't like it. So I didn't want to put myself through another potentially hard experience. But yeah, it's caused a lot of, it's caused a lot of uproar. Um you know, you're having there's a lot of misogynistic comments going around that is only there because they're trying to be woke and let a woman be number one and all this kind of bullshit. Forgetting that, you know, this is just an aggregated collection of films that were in people's top ten. Like when exactly. the when when the critics, you know, when the critics were submitting their list, they weren't doing it in a ranked order. You know, they weren't asked to do rank from one to ten and they'll allot you know such amount of points to each one, add them all up. They were just told to give us 10 films that you love. And Jean Dielman just happened to be in most the most lists. And that's as simple as that. And this is kind of the, the interesting nature of lists. We touched on this when we did our IMDb list and things like that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, this is just a democratic listing of films that are good. And I think Sight and Sound and BFI, they know what they're doing when they call this list the greatest films of all time. They're inviting controversy because, you know, it's good publicity for them at the end of the day. I'm sure a lot of people, they've got a, probably more traffic to their website for the first time in 10 years. Yeah, exactly. I know a lot of people are going to be buying their magazine for the first time ever. I did used to buy Sight and Sound magazine quite religiously until COVID happened. So I wasn't really able to get my hands on it very easily. But this will be the first time I'll, have, I'll be buying a Sight and Sound magazine in probably about two years. And I'm sure they're going to get a lot of people buying the magazine um, just so that they can read the sort of deeper thoughts about these picks. Yeah. So, but at the end of the day, it's 100 films that appeared most in critics' top or critics' favorite 10 films. So everyone stop being mad. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't think anyone is say, sitting here and saying this film is better than this film because how could you compare them? How could you compare? How can you say, say you know, say Jean Diamond is better than Vertigo when they're so different? Or Vertigo is better than, I'll just pick a random one from further up the list, Meshes of the Afternoon. How do you even compare a 14-minute surrealist short 
to a two hour sort of romantic thriller. Yeah. You, you can't, there's no objective way of doing it. So everyone calm the fuck down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, this, I, I was really happy to see singing in the rain show up on so many people's lists because that that's a movie that I went into with kind of like middling expectations and it really honestly blew me away. Like, I think that's, I'd be surprised if I see a musical that I like better. Just hmm. the just the choreography alone is enough to like, like the stuff they do in that is amazing. It's almost like CGI. Like it's so fast and, and intricate and like, I love what they do. Um, the songs are catchy. It's like an American in Paris, but I think better. Um, I was a little sad Sunrise fell out of the top 10. Um, yeah, Sunrise is way better than Vertigo. Oh, I don't know about that, man. <laughs> um, I, I just really quickly, you know, it's interesting. If you start going up into that next tier, Cleo from five to seven jumped up, which I love that movie. Yeah. Um, Close up is really high, which is great. Love that that's high. Um, you, you start to see some of the film school classics starting to slip a little bit. Seven Samurai is at 20. Joan of Arc is at 21. Late Spring is tied at 21. Playtime is 23. They're still high, but I think you're seeing this. I don't want to call it changing of the guard, but you're seeing this, like, we're not one generation past film school. Now we're like two or three generations past film school, and there's a much larger body of work. And so films, I think, are having to rely on their merit a lot more as opposed to just their historical significance, which I like. And as new critics are discovering Ahuzard Balthazar, like they have to decide if they like it more than Daisies. And Daisies is quickly kind of catching up now, mm. you know, which which I like. Um, Night of the Hunter is 25, which made me smile. That's yeah, I was really that, happy to see that jump up. Yeah. Yeah, that movie's getting a lot of love. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting, I never hear people talk about, uh, where is it here? 2001 film from Varda, which is, or 2000 film from Varda called The Gleaners and I. Any chance I, that you all have seen? I literally watched it the other night. How was it? It was it was the first film from this, because I, I was looking at my letterbox to see what I had and hadn't seen, just to kind of see like how far through I am. So let me just get the list in front of me just so I can remember exactly where I am with this. Um stats sorry i'm just opening my letterbox now stats all time sight and sound so i'm on 83 out of 100 oh wow um for this for the critics list and so i was just kind of working through just trying to find a film to watch from it that was kind of on the shorter side and the gleaners and i was there and i was kind of like skeptical i was like okay we're like how good can this documentary be about scavengers like I don't know if it's like in the top one hundred greatest films, but it's it's really good. It's really it's way more entertaining and engaging than I expected it. And I'm a big Agnes Varda fan. I'm really happy to see that she's had that she has a film so hard so high up in the list in Cleo from five to seven. It's not my favorite Varda film, but I'm glad to see her represented so high up there because she's a yeah. great director. Yeah. Um, but the Gleaners and I, it's it's really touching. It's really interesting. It starts with a very sort of basic concept of. The gleaners in in France were basically people who went around the fields after they've been plowed to kind of pick up the excess crops for themselves, so like potatoes and corn and stuff. So kind of like scavengers. And she takes that concept and puts it in a, in a in a modern form where she starts with people who still do that, who like collect them up for like 
goodwill and stuff to like sort of give the first aid and everything. Um, but then it goes to people who, you know, go around people's trash and picking out food that, you know, maybe expired yesterday and eating that rather than letting it go to waste. Or it goes to people who go around recycling centers, picking out junk and making art from it. So it's just all about sort of giving renewed life and sort of, you know, to, to things that can be scavenged. Oh, and I thought oh, it was, okay. yeah, it was a really, it was a really interesting documentary. Didn't expect to, to kind of walk away enjoying it and finding it as interesting as I was, as I did. I was kind of, yeah. like I said, I was skeptical. Um, again, I don't know if it's a 100 you know, greatest film of all time or anything like that. But yeah, I thought it, I thought it was really good. Um, I, I've I've no problem with it being rated highly because I I thought it was interesting. Um, that's good. Right, right around that is Tukibuki. So I'm I'm happy that there's a little bit of African cinema that's creeping up on the list. Right yeah, below Black that, Black Girl is... is in there as well at 99. So I think those oh, are the right. two African films that are that are there. Um, I don't know if those are my favorite um well actually black girl is probably my favorite african film that i've seen um yeah, yeah i think one thing we can sort of take away like there's two things really you can take away and i want to get zach's thoughts because uh, we haven't given him a chance yet two that there definitely does seem to be a much wider berth in terms of representation which i'm all for i'm happy for you know i think paul you know as paul schrader went on this big rant on his facebook page i don't know if you guys follow paul schrader on facebook but i, I definitely do because it's funny just to hear a big boomer talk about stuff. Um, and he went on about all essentially that, you know, this list isn't is all about wokeness and sort of taking away the canon from the people who actually made canon and all this shit. And someone called him out on it saying, you know, just because you like, you know, movies from white guys doesn't mean that's canon. And he sort of clapped back saying, you know, they're the ones who've made all the great movies. So obviously they are canon. So all, all this kind of boomer bullshit anyway. I'm happy to see representation across from different countries, different sort of underseen filmmakers, you know, different parts of the world and things like that. And um, the other thing that I sort of immediately jumped out at me when I was going through the list was a lot of the time there's filmmakers represented here with films that I, I don't necessarily think are their best films, but they're like their they're most well-known. So like, I'll give, I'm going to give Goddard as the example here. So Goddard has two films from what I can see. He has five, because I'm going to bring that up. He, he has five films. Oh, sorry. He does have three, four. What's the fifth one? Um, hold on, let me try and find the fifth one so I can talk about these. I see Breathless. I'm going back to this. I got to pull, pull it up. Breathless, Pearl of Foo, History, Just Cinema. Um, but anyway, it, it doesn't actually contempt. It doesn't actually change my point. Like, Breathless is 38, right? I don't think Breathless is Godard's best film, but it's definitely his most famous film and his most influential film. So I feel like that's what's bumped it up. I feel the same way, but like, Taxi Driver for Scorsese or Persona for Bergman or Close Up for Kiristami. Like I again, this is all down to personal opinion. I personally don't think those are those filmmakers' best films. Cleo from Five to Seven, again, another example for Varda. I don't think those are their best films, but they're probably their most famous and more most sort of influential. So that's why they get bumped up. Um and I, this is a trend that I that I saw in the 2012 list, and it seems to continue here as well. That 
name name recognition seems to go a long way with, with these lists rather than actual quality of film. I'm okay with that though. Sorry, Zach, I, I keep jumping in. I just, I'm like, these are gateway films to these directors, right? I think, I, I don't know. This is where the problem lies though. If you're going to call this list the greatest films, which again, I know they're doing it on purpose to create controversy. Um, if you're going to call this the greatest films and name the greatest films, not the most popular films or the most influential films. It's just too hard in aggregate, right? Some people don't like Godard at all. That's the thing, yeah. And again, I suppose all of this comes down to the main theme, which is lists are largely bullshit. Don't get butthurt over them. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I want to hear some thoughts from Zach on this. Please, please, please. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 I think the way lists are used are what's more important. Like when we look at like the Letterbox Top 250 or the IMD Top 250, they kind of do what they're set out to do. I don't think they necessarily think these are the greatest, but they are definitely the most representative of the user base, especially as to the way they figure up how they do it. No one's going to just, you know, the things that that's why those lists are so different is because they cater to different user bases. And so what can you really say as much as I think, you know, Letterboxd has an issue with recent, they, they both had issues with recency bias, but you know, when stuff like everything everywhere all at once ends up as the number one spot on letterbox, you're like, yeah, that kind of highlights an issue, you know, when you take votes that way over time. Um, now, the sight and sound list is kind of on the other end. They kind of did what AFI, I don't know if AFI still does the top 100 best American films anymore. They did for years, uh, but they would only do it every 10 as well. Um, and you're kind of putting out there, this isn't a user base, this is taking votes from i don't know how many people it is um from across there which i think is really cool i think that's interesting um there's a reason the director's list and the um uh, critics list are a little bit different but i don't know i i think the way it, it comes across is it's i don't know if it highlights more of a bias or towards certain types of films or something but you know to sit there and say goddard is created I, it may only be four but i think it's it's either four or five created four or five percent of the greatest films ever made or you know it's 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 a weird statement to make that i think just makes me wonder what's the point of the list i guess in that extent. like i feel like the list is like i think you guys mentioned like a gateway for people to find these films if i were to take this as a gateway from someone just getting the film i would sit there and say i could watch 10 of these and i would get a pretty good gauge of what these are this isn't going to be you know i'll jokingly talk about there's no carpenter list and there's no uh peck and paw on the list and stuff like that but it doesn't have as much variety as i would like when we talk about the greatest films ever made like true variety from a spectrum of different type of movies and i don't know if that comes down to where they get votes from or what i just think it's makes me wonder the point of it in that sense yeah, I think we'll get a better gauge on this when they release the full 250, which I think is coming out on the 10th. I think the, the full the 250 that we normally get a little while after will have a lot more variety on there. I think there was something like, I think there was a crazy amount of people uh, polled for this, like 1,400 critics or something like that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people. And I would, I would be shocked if there wasn't variety available from 1400 people you know 
Um, but I see what you mean. Like in terms of like genre and stuff, there's it's pretty much all drama in some respect. Pretty much the whole list for the most part is drama. A couple of couple of uh, there's obviously the one musical that I can see. There's a couple of surreal films like Persona, Meshes of the Afternoon, Mulholland like Spirited Drive, Away is but... on there, but I guess that's yeah. even a drama of it. Yeah, like there's there's not a whole lot of variety, and like there's like one horror film which is Get Out, um, which kind the of Shining is on slap- there too, I think. Oh, The Shining is on there too. So you have two horror films, The Shining and Get Out, and that kind of feels like a slap in the face to horror movies. Um, yeah. You know, I like like The Shining's fine. I have no problem with that. I like Get Out. I have no problem with it. But, you know, to call that can, can, canonically, you know, the second best horror movie ever made, I don't know about that. Yeah, and, and that's kind of like, you know, we talk about, I mean, how many great, and this is nothing against Pill. I like Pill. Nope is in my top three of the year. Get Out was in probably my top ten of that year. I, I like him. I, I think he's got a great voice for horror. But, I mean, when we've had people like Craven and Romero and Carpenter and whoever else you want to add in there, uh, Mike. I mean, it's just weird to sit there and see Peel in the top 100, but all of those guys left out who yeah. didn't arguably define the genre in a lot more significant of a way. Yeah, and I don't know what they're basing off of, whether it's influence or whether it's just quality of the picture. I, I, I can't speak for 1400 because I'm sure they all had different criteria when they decided on it. That's the thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's even Hitchcock, right? Yeah. Like, Sorry. Yeah, it's and again, every 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 argument we have about this list is all going to boil down to the fact that this is just aggregated views from a bunch of people and how often it showed up. I'm just surprised it showed up in that many people's ten that it ended up so high up here. That was my only thing. Yeah, yeah, like like enough people voted Get Out in their top ten that it that it showed up in the list, which is just interesting. I wouldn't have. I mean, but the thing or Texas Chainsaw didn't show up. That's kind of like you would. I don't know. I would just like. Give me 14, I had 1,400 critics, or I, honestly, maybe more from directors than critics, but I would sit there and say those would show up more just naturally if you were to ask me before I saw the top 100. But minor point, the psych, Psycho is also in the top 100 at 31, so oh, okay. there's technically okay. three, yeah. but but still. Yeah, Psycho kind of treads that line between horror and threat, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking because I... Where's I Friedkin I... on the list? Yeah, it's funny, you know. There's there's a lot there's there's a lot of interesting omissions, and again, I feel weird saying omission because it's not like they decided to not. It's not like Sight and Sound sat down here and said, "Nah, fuck that, I'm not putting that in here." Exactly. But like, exactly. You but you, you still look at it and think, how did enough people not vote for such and such a film for to you know miss out? Like the one that was really glaring for me that's on the director's list but not on the critics one and. I haven't actually seen it, but it's just so popular. I was surprised to not see it. it was come and see. Yeah, I was super surprised to not see that again. I haven't seen it, so I can't attest. I can't sit here and honestly tell you if it's a great film or not. But it's certainly a very popular film um, that has really, because of the Criterion release, has essentially entered the mainstream now. Mm-hmm. That a lot of people who aren't even just film buffs know about the movie. Like even when you go on to like I've seen Ask Reddit threads, which are normally just everyone recommending the same five films over and over again. But I've seen, you know, ask Reddit threads where people are asking for, you know, disturbing films or films that like, 
you know, emotionally charged and come and see is always mentioned with a ton of upvotes. Yeah. Um, so I was surprised to not see that in the critics list. Um, and then there's other films like in that show up in the director's list that you kind of forgot about. But like once you see them in the director's list, you're like, oh shit, yeah, why isn't that in the critics list either? So, you know, another example like Jaws, you know, yeah. it's another, I know it's another kind of horror esque film. I'm not just trying to pick out horror here, but like Don't Look Now is another one. Well, and I um, think that might come down to like, I think directors appreciate horror and they're way more open to say, call it their influence yeah. than a critic is. Yeah. Critics are yeah. notoriously harsh on horror. Um, Get Out wasn't even considered horror at award shows, so it could kind of justify its existence there. Right. Yeah, we have some work to do to get Action USA in this list for 2032. <laughs> oh, agreed. Hopefully, with 2032, we'll be invited to give our ten, <laughs> and we can we can rig the vote then. Just all of us putting in Halloween ten times. Oh, I'm trolling the hell out of that list if I ever got invited to it. It would be like some of the work. Like Battle Heater would be on there. Battle Heater, Deathbed, <laughs> um, I kind of Revengeance, uh, <laughs> Terminal USA. They just they just take your vote away quietly without telling you. <laughs> like it got lost. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Uh-oh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Mail fraud. Stop the vote. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's not, I don't have too much else to say. I mean, you know, I, the, the only thing just, I guess I kind of already said it once, but just to kind of, my main takeaway from this was that I, you know, I'd be really interested to see because it's every 10 years, it's almost like there's a storyline that very slowly starts to develop. Right. But especially once they release the 250, like you said, we'll see a little bit more of this. I imagine that more and more critics are feeling okay to put films that they didn't learn about in film school or the films they should put on the list. I, I think that more and more they're growing okay adding the ones they like a lot. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping this trend continues and over t- in the next 10 or 20 years, we see this list much more uh, balanced between like technically brilliant films and films that are just like fun as hell to watch and people just enjoy. Um, cause I think that that would be a closer representation to the greatest movies, right? Mm-hmm. My final point is that when the 250 releases, if that nine hour documentary, but a Chinese textile dis- district is on there, I'll lose my fucking shit. Cause I'm not <laughs> watching 99% completion forever. I, I'm already, I'm already going to struggle to watch Shoa. I'm not dealing with that as well. <laughs> Oh, that's another reasons. one I put on there, that 10-hour video of uh, paint drying. <laughs> <laughs> it's on YouTube if anybody wants to see it. Oh, thank God. I'm glad the British board got to watch it. I've, I've made my uh, made my son watch it. Not the whole thing, but just as a joke one time, I put it on just to see how long he could take it. <laughs> Didn't last long. That might be child abuse in some countries. <laughs> no, only if I made him see the whole thing. This is just more of a test. It's like, this is my favorite movie. <laughs> and he put it on, and I was curious how long he could stay and watch it. <laughs> Reminds me of that scene in Community where Annie gets Troy and Abed to participate in a psychological experiment where she gets them in a waiting room and comes in every few minutes saying, we'll just be a few more minutes. and just does uh-huh. have to see how long they'll wait there, uh-huh. which Abed stays there for like 26 hours and ruins the whole thing. <laughs> um, <but> yeah. <laughs> well, 
well, it kind of reminds me of uh, there's a test where they did, and this was considered like cruel and not scientifically sound, but they would get a doctor or a doctor to come in with a lab coat on and say, hey, I need you to shock the person in the next room. This is part of the experiment oh. and to see how many people would do it. And it found <laughs> out, oh, if somebody in a lab coat tells you to do something, you're more likely to do it. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I remember learning about that, too. Um, but yeah, top two fifty, the top one hundred. I'm curious about the top two fifty. I'm hoping it's a, hopefully a little bit more representative of what I would say is like. And I, I don't want just you know genre films I like on there, but I would hope it'd be like a broader feel. That's kind of my hope with the top two fifty. Any yeah. any what's one film that y'all would put on here if it was your list? I mean Halloween or the thing. I don't care which Carpenter one you pick. Just pick one <laughs> or the Wild Bunch. Yeah, I've I, honestly Halloween um it's so influential like it's it, it transcends horror it's it's just an influential great film so yeah halloween for sure for me just thinking about this i i think mine's female prisoner 701 oh that's a great <laughs> i'd love to see that on there no i'm not even joking like that movie i just have thought about it so much as like it, it's such a good movie adam did you ever get around to see it i never actually did no, no you need mine. to watch that's it man it's good yeah, we, we, still have we talked about there. it. We yeah, we talked about it last year on our wrap up. Um, so we, we can talk about it again this year on our wrap up. But <laughs> and once uh, again, I'll go, Oh, yeah, I'll get around to that exactly. <laughs> and then 2023 during our wrap up, we'll also talk about it again. The watch list gag. a person's watch list is just social currency, anyway. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Right, so before we wrap things up, I suppose I'll tell you what we're going to be watching next mm-hmm. time around. So uh, Criterion is part of their December sort of, uh, sorry, the Criterion Channel, I should specify, as part of their December programming, has a series of films which are basically snowy westerns. So, western films set in the snow. There is one film that I talked about in the very first episode of this podcast, and I've mentioned it several other times, and I'm glad it's finally back on the channel after so long being away. Uh, that is the Andre de Tocht Western Day of the Outlaw. So that's one. And then I was tossing up, there was a few different options for the second one. And I decided to go with one that I hadn't seen because I'd already seen Day of the Outlaw. The other one I was thinking of, I'd already seen it. So I decided to go for one that I haven't seen. And that is the Robert Altman film, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. The last Altman film we did did really well. So for you. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody plays puzzles here. I still need to, I still need to, to wash out my mouth from images. So I don't think <laughs> this I don't is a good Altman film, don't worry. <laughs> I don't think I've seen an Altman film since that. So we'll uh we'll hope that that clears that. Uh, so yeah, Snowy Westerns next time around. Obviously there'll be another episode in between with an interview that um you'll see. Chris, do you want to give a sneak peek on the next interview episode or do you want to hold your cards to your chest? No, 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 no. I'm uh so I'll say if you have if you're listening to this and you have not heard the interview from Mawu Films that we just released, please go listen. Uh, Gareth is a gem of a human, and he was super nervous to come on, and he did great. Uh, it was his first ever interview, first ever recorded interview, um, and uh, he's going to do some great work. African and Latin American cinema is his focus, which a lot of people have been clamoring for, so he's doing some good work. Uh, unfortunately, he's only going to be releasing two to three films a year because it's just him. Um, but uh, get in now. It's going to be very easy to be complete on Ma, Ma Wu films. Um, 
the next one coming up is going to be um, one I was honestly like I don't get nervous a lot like I've done a lot of these but it was with Fran Simeone from Radiance Films and I've become such a fan of Arrow um, specifically for their curation and the, and the films that they choose that I was it just felt like talking to a celebrity for me um, couldn't have been nicer my nerves quickly went away just turned into a nice conversation but um Fran Simeone knows more about film than than I'll probably ever know and uh is taking that and turning it into a label that I think is going to compete with Criterion honestly I really do like um because he's taking all the lessons of packaging and art and and the way you promote the films and and everything and and, and packaging around some some honestly uh amazing movies that are still left to be discovered. So I'm very excited for Radiance and that was a fun conversation. So that's coming out next. And then are we going to have a wrap up episode soon? We will. Yeah. Listeners by the end of the year, there will be a, a wrap up episode like we did last year. We're just going to talk about our favorite films, our favorite segments, everything like that. So another few episodes come out before the end of the year, before we take a little break at Christmas and then we'll be back with you in January uh, and actually, I might as well tell you now, but a new endeavor we're going to take in the new year, something that we're going to start doing. Um, just in terms of if you want to help support us out, we're going to start putting up uh, just special kind of one-off episodes um, that you can get access to through subscription, through Anchor or through Spotify. Um, we haven't made any final decisions on pricing. It's not going to be anything crazy like two bucks or something like that a month. It's just going to give you access to special one-off episodes. Nothing, no, nothing regular is going to be locked. Just so you'll get all your normal episodes and your um, interview episodes and everything like that. Just once a month, one of us is going to record just something interesting that we want to talk about. Kind of like how a few months ago we were doing those director ranked lists when I was out sick for a little while. So um, we're going to have more of those coming in the new year, but they are going to be part just as a little sort of uh, an extra service. If you just want to help us sort of um, keep the lights on and things like that um but yeah we'll we'll, we'll sort of get more details on that uh, in the in the start of the new year anyway can't wait